invite you to turn this evening to Luke chapter 11, beloved. Luke chapter 11. It's so true. We need the Lord every hour. We need Him every minute. Constantly we are in need of His grace and support. Satan hath desired to sift thee as wheat. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And that's the kind of support we need from the Lord, ongoing, all of the time. Him helping us and supporting us. And we come to the last petition, or the, well, whether you pair them as one or see them as two separate ones at the end of verse 4, but we'll read from verse 1 again, Luke chapter 11, verse 1, let's hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. May the Lord write His Word in our hearts and help us to keep it within our own souls. Let's seek Him, let's pray, let's call upon His name. We come to His Word, and it's easy to be distracted, easy for us to not pay attention. Lord, teach us how to hear Thy Word and how to receive Thy Word. We need Thee every hour. We pray that Thou wilt make us a people that understand how dependent we are. It would be an awful thing to drift through life thinking that we have strength in ourselves and to neglect grace, to neglect Christ, to neglect the Holy Spirit. We pray then that Thou wilt deliver us from that and give us a consciousness, a consciousness of our weakness and a consciousness of what we have, what Christ has purchased for us and what we enjoy as Thy people. We are Thy children and we thank Thee this night that we can say, Our Father. We pray then that Thou wilt look tenderly toward Thy children tonight and bless us and feed us and for those without Christ, we pray, save, save them, we, we plead with Thee. So give help now, give help to the preacher and to those before us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been working through this portion of God's Word over recent weeks. The account given by Luke that records what is often known as the Lord's Prayer. Some have debated the title whether or not that's a good title for the prayer. When you title it the Lord's Prayer, it gives the impression that it's something that the Lord prayed. When, of course, that clearly cannot be the case when He is seeking for forgiveness. And we know our Lord never needed to seek for forgiveness for His sins. So in one sense, it's wrongly designated. But of course, what is meant by the Lord's Prayer is that that is that prayer that was specifically given by the Lord to His people to help them to come in response to their request as it is given here where 
One comes and asks, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And the whole portion here, the opening 13 verses, deals with prayer. And I have given an overarching title to this, this whole section, A Class on Prayer with Jesus Christ. And we are not yet quite out of that section that is titled the Lord's Prayer. And so we have dealt with, first of all, the chief example of prayer, that's verse 1, where Christ is praying. And as He prays, they wait for Him and then they ask to be instructed. And then we have not only the chief example of prayer, but the central elements of prayer. And that's what we've been working our way through over recent weeks. We have considered, first, relationship. That's key. Our Father, which art in heaven. We've considered reverence. Hallowed be thy name. We have an undergirding reason to the whole prayer as well. Thy kingdom come, which is this all-encompassing desire of what goes on here upon the earth. We also have responsibility. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. We are to work towards things being done as is done in heaven. We are to express that obedience and desire to encourage that obedience here on the earth as well with God's help. There's also reliance. Give us day by day our daily bread. And there's also repentance. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. So we have looked at those so far. We come to the last here this evening, the Lord giving us help. And of course, before we look at it, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Preceding that, just to remind you again, when we pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. We are seeking from God deliverance from the judgment sin deserves. Forgive us. Forgive us. Remove that which we deserve for our sin. Remove from us the judgment that sin deserves in our lives. But the next petition, the petition we look at this evening, beloved, takes the desire further. Don't just deliver us from the judgment of sin. Deliver us from sin itself. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this ought not to be surprising to those of us that have been saved for any length of time, because we realize that one of the distinctions of God's people is their desire for holiness. They desire holiness. They want it. I trust that's felt by you. I know we don't want it as much as we want it, just as we don't love Christ as much as we ought. But there, there has to be. Those who profess faith in Christ must express, must feel within their own souls a desire for holiness. We are not only to be marked by an understanding of sin, that moves us to seek forgiveness, we're also to be marked by an understanding of sin that moves us to seek deliverance from sin altogether. One of the struggles for new and zealous believers is the tendency to underestimate the power of sin and the weakness of the flesh. It is a frustrating experience to learn that the new birth does not bring an end to sin. And you will see this in new believers. You will hear it. You'll, you'll sense that struggle that they feel. The, there's an element of naivety that there may be with the salvation and the joy that enters in, especially when you're saved as an adult. There is this 
time where you feel like you are, you're kind of living in a bubble, things couldn't be better, and you're enjoying everything that you have in Christ and the forgiveness of sins, and there's a, there's a little sense, there's a little naivety that underestimates the remaining power of sin and the reality of the ongoing weakness of the flesh. Turn for a moment to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 8. You have a good example here of how men underestimate themselves. They, they, they don't realize just how corrupt they are, what they're capable of. And of course, we're dealing here with an unbeliever in this example, but we can apply it to a believer and we'll do that in just a moment. But in 2 Kings chapter 8, we'll take time to read from verse 7. This is during the ministry of Elisha, and he's, he's communicating here in relation to the king of Syria. And so Elisha came to Damascus, and Benadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come hither. And the king said unto Hazael, Take a present in thine hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Hazael went to meet him, and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, for the camel's burden, and came, stood before him, and said, Thy son, Benadad, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, Go, say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover, albeit the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with a sword, and wilt dash their children and rip up their women with child. And Hazael said, What is thy servant, a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. Hazael could not believe that he would ever be capable of this. Of course, he couldn't foresee all that would, would transpire, and he was not able to understand the language of the prophet, but the prophet had, had revealed to him by God that the current king would die, Hazael would take his place, and with that power, he would be overcome with temptation to destroy the children of Israel. Men are naive. They do not understand the weakness of themselves. They do not realize what they're capable of. And many people, for example, they have longed for power and wealth and imagined that should they have that bestowed upon them, they would rule and they would order their affairs much differently than other corrupt, powerful, and wealthy people. But often they underestimate the power of sin and the weakness of the flesh. As I said, it's not just something for unbelievers. You're not just looking at Hazael who doesn't know the Lord. Peter also had to come to learn this experience, did he not? When in Matthew 26, 33, Peter answered and said unto him, The wall men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Peter didn't understand. He didn't get it. He didn't understand the weakness of himself. 
And I say this is a common discouragement among particularly new believers. They imagine that, that they have power to live in such a way that is completely transformed from their past. And yes, there will be a distinction. And yes, there will be a transformation. And yes, it may be said that the old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. But there remains this constant battle with temptation and the reality of our weakness. And we fall. Devastatingly, sometimes we fall. So tonight we come to this last part of the petition in the Lord's Prayer, given here in Luke 11, which we've given simply the word refuge. Refuge. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Note with me a few things here, beloved. First, there is a refuge from Satan's activity. There's a refuge from Satan's activity. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is a debate and discussion around whether this refers to evil in general or the evil one. There are other passages, of course, where people uh, interpret or translate it in different ways, and either really works. Satan's behind evil. Satan is the one who encourages. He is the father of lies, and whether or not he's actually the one who is stimulating something, evil originates in one sense from him. It is encouraged by him. It is spread abroad by him. And we have a great enemy. We have one who certainly is endeavoring to lead us into temptation and bring us into evil. Let us not be ignorant of his devices. Let's not imagine that this is someone else's problem. It's not mine. No, this is a problem that we all understand, or at least we ought to. And Satan, of course, he misrepresents sin and its consequences. He highlights the temporary promises of sin and hides the eternal judgment of it. He distorts the intentions behind God's commands, makes it out as if what God is willing for you is somehow a hindrance or negative. He is the accuser of the brethren, according to Scripture, persuading sinners that where grace abounds, sin does much more abound. In our blessings, He tempts us to carnality and complacency. In our afflictions, He tempts us to doubt and discouragement. In joy and in sorrow, in youth and in maturity, in sickness and in health, in poverty and prosperity, in company and in solitude, in calm and in chaos, Satan is there to tempt. There's no escaping him. He doesn't look at you and say, I'll leave you alone. He's constantly endeavoring to destroy. His activity is described by Paul in Ephesians 6, verse 16, as the fiery darts of the wicked. Fiery darts. They are targeting you. He, has a, he doesn't just fire them aimlessly. He is after you. And again, in every season of life, when things are going well, he's firing certain darts. And they're very tailored, they're very, they're very particular for the occasion. He doesn't just fire general darts. He fires darts that are tailored for where you are. So amidst success, he will fire darts to encourage pride. 
And amidst times of sorrow, he will fire darts of, of, of discouragement. Satan, like all tradesmen, has his various tools. And Satan's not like a poor tradesman who buys those budget tools that barely do the job, sometimes fail to do the job, which just brings to mind a funny story. And when I was a teenager, I did construction during a summer, and I will never forget, we were on a site and where the foundations have been laid and we're laying kind of the first row of bricks in this house that's being built. And <laughs> after a whole morning's work, the foreman, my boss, is going around and he's, he's measuring the work that's being done, just making sure everything is the way the plans have said. So he's measuring, and <laughs> he's measuring over and over again across this wall to see that it's plumb and so on and so forth, and he's looking and he's remeasuring and remeasuring and he's shaking his head and he's, he's trying to figure out what's going on. And long story short, basically after I don't know how long, five, ten minutes of trying to figure out what on earth has happened here, why is this not measuring correctly? He takes a look at the guy who had been building that part of the wall, takes a look at his tape measure, and it was one of those kind of dollar store budget tape measures, which perhaps over the space of maybe 12 inches would be accurate, but over, I don't know, 12 meters or so, it began to lose its accuracy over, over distance. And so he realized this, this tape measure was completely off. And I, he was so livid. <laughs> it was like a whole morning's work had been wasted. Well, Satan doesn't use tools like that. He has his Festools and his Makitas and his Milwaukee tools that are, that are capable for the task of destroying you. So we are told by Peter, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. It's not a time for games. It's not a time for games. No time in life is a time for games. You understand that? When you're young, it feels like life is a time, you know, this is a time for games. That would be great if you could kind of hit pause on Satan's attacks on your life. But you can't do that. Young people, hear me. Hear the Apostle Paul. Hear the Holy Spirit. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He is very real. Very real. And only the sober will survive. And of course the sober then will look at the language of this prayer and realize, I need to pray this. I need to pray amidst Satan's activity. I need to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You're not up to the task. You don't have the power yourself, friend. Satan is real. And all your plans for life and all your ambitions, if you do not account for the fact that you are under fire, 
you're going to be taken out. And there may be consequences to that that you can never, ever correct. But there's also here refuge from self's volatility. Not only from Satan's activity, but self's volatility. There's real volatility in ourselves. We, we should understand this. James chapter 1, verse 14 and following. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, <clears throat> neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. There is a treacherous inclination in our flesh. And as I said, it can take believers sometimes a while to understand this. You don't get it immediately. Don't. You don't. It's, well, most don't. Most don't get it immediately. And this is why one of the qualifications of the elder is that he has some measure of spiritual experience. 1 Timothy 3.6, Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. One of the dangers of the new believer is he, he doesn't understand. He thinks that, you know, that he, is, he, is, he is able to live this life and successfully do so by his own strength. And then you give him spiritual position and pride comes in and he thinks, I'm able to do this. But this is why, this is why you want someone a little further along the road. Someone that has been beaten down sufficiently, repeatedly, so that he knows in my flesh dwells no good thing. I can't do this. I haven't been given this position because I'm spiritually more powerful than other people, that I am the greatest example that could be given. It's not, it's not about that. Yes, there are qualifications. There are things that must be on display. But he also, also is a man who understands his own weakness so that Pride is less of an issue in his heart. He, he knows how weak he is. And you can see this immaturity in our, our parents, Adam and Eve, right from the beginning. Genesis 3, reading from verse 12, the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. So there's Adam. It's her. The problem's not in me. The problem's in her. And in some ways, kind of the problem's on you, Lord. Because she's the woman you gave me. It's your fault. And Eve's no different. Because the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. It's God's fault, it's someone else's fault, or it's Satan's fault, right? There's basically the options, aren't they? It's not me. I'm not the issue here. It's the Lord, or Satan, or someone around me. Someone in my sphere of circles. Their, their problem. We haven't moved on from Genesis 3. We're, we're still there. This is, this is man. This is how he feels. This is how he continues on. And this sets the tone. This sets the tone. We like to act like the devil, or someone else made us commit sin. But we're giving place to the devil. That's what it says in Ephesians 4, 26 and following. It says, Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. This is what Christians do. This is what people do. They give place to the devil. They don't understand the volatility of their own flesh. 
They like to blame something else, but it's really in them. The problem is in you. Of course, the evidence of this is the contrary, the contrast of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 30, he says, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. He hath nothing in me. But people, other people, other than Christ, they give place to the devil. There's plenty for him to work on in them. So, so, how are we to live, Christian? How do we understand our need? Jesus says in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So it's not just enough to will. To will deliverance. It's not enough. It's not just enough to want deliverance. Right? You can really want it. Okay? I really want to be delivered. But the, the want is enough. That's what Jesus is telling them. The Spirit indeed is willing, like you want it. You want what's right, but the flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. So what's, what's the answer? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. And that's, therefore, why we're given this prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If we're not praying this way, if we're not making this request... We are assuming that we don't need the help. Perhaps imagining that simply because I want to not do evil. I want to be kept from temptation. The want is not enough. It's not. You need to pray. God has so made it that you need a supply of grace. You need to seek the help of the Spirit. You need the upholding hand of God. I need thee every hour. That's what we're singing. So we are exhorted then by Paul again, Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God. What are you doing? You're putting on Christ. That's it in a nutshell. The armor has its various parts, but essentially what you're doing is you're putting on Christ. So we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But how are we to pray that way? What I mean is, does it require anything of us? Do we just pray this way and then leave it to God to bring it to pass? Or ought we to make use of the things God has appointed for our good? One preacher says, if we can't be bothered with God's ordinances... What he's dealing with there is the Word. He's dealing with prayer. He's dealing with the sacraments. He's dealing with public and private means of grace. If we can't be bothered with God's ordinances, either we do not believe God has appointed them, or we do not believe that He uses them, or we do not believe we need them, or we don't care about sin. There's nowhere else to turn. So when we pray this way, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, it assumes we make use of the means He has given. 
that I'd be foolish to pray this way and then ignore the Bible, ignore prayer, ignore corporate worship, ignore the Lord's table. It would be foolish of me to pray this way and not give myself to the things God has given. So when I'm praying this way, I'm also obligated to do or give myself to the things God uses to help grant deliverance. So we understand the language of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hidden mine heart, so I can brag about how much I know. (laughs) That's not why. Thy word have I hidden mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. I need the word. I need it in my heart, in order that I might know what it is to be led not into temptation, but delivered from evil. Now, in addition to all of this, this prayer shows that the children of God, those who can say, Our Father, have a right to a deliverance. They have a right to a deliverance that evades others. A deliverance that others don't know anything about. We are praying for something that escapes the reach of others. Or we might even say, others don't even desire or want. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Christ has given us liberty. He has given us such liberty that we might enjoy being led not into temptation and delivered from evil. We have liberty. You have liberty. Christ upon the cross, dying there, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, brings liberty to us. Brings, brings things that far exceed what I can even begin to help you understand. There are things for us, beloved. Think, think for example, Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's what He's given to us. I see this as part of that. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That has to be part of that, surely. It must be. Or later in Ephesians 2 verse 6, that He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It would appear to me that if I'm sitting with Christ in heavenly places, that would be being led away from temptation and delivered from evil. So Christian, hear the words. What Paul says in Galatians 5.13, Brethren, ye have been called on to liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. You've been called on to liberty. Called on to liberty. You don't have to feel the fear or the sense that there is no deliverance for you. You can pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We can say with the psalmist David in Psalm 18 verse 19, He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because He delighted in me. Yes, He delivered me because He delighted in me. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we are very much in need of the Lord's help. Turn to Romans 6, Romans chapter 6.
The fact that we pray this way does not imply that we are in bondage. It just recognizes the challenge that we face in this world. But it would be wrong for us to imagine ourselves to be somehow slaves to this, that we can never get deliverance. Romans 6, look at verse 18. Well, look at verse 17. God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Something has happened. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Look at verse 22. Now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Beloved, this is true of you. This is what Christ has purchased for you. When you pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, you're, you're praying for what is yours in Christ. You're asking for what the blood of Christ was shed for and the merit of that and all that it has purchased for you to be granted to you as someone who is a child of God who can say, Our Father. I am your child. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. This is your right. You don't have to persuade God. You don't have to convince Him. You don't have to try and challenge Him to do this or bring this to pass. You simply must pray it and then do what your Father would have you to do as His child. Read His Word. Pray. Give yourself to the means of grace. Every time I read Romans 6, every single time, I think without exception, I am struck by how easily we forget positionally what we have in Christ. You are made free from sin. so that you might be servants of righteousness. It's powerful. That thirdly then brings me to the fact that there is refuge in God's sovereignty. There's not only refuge from Satan's activity and refuge from self's volatility, there's also refuge in God's sovereignty. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, as with every prayer, it is a recognition that God is sovereign. Why else would you pray? The fact that we are praying this is a recognition He has power to make a difference here. That He superintends and sovereignly governs over the affairs of this world and specifically our lives too. Now we are asking here, lead us not into temptation. Don't do that, Lord. And of course, there are certain passages then that come to mind that challenge us as to lead us not into temptation, but there are passages that tell us that God tempted Abraham, for example, Genesis 22. Of course, what's important to remember there is that 
Temptation involves a whole series or various types of, of experiences. God never once tempts in the way we normally understand that word. He tests. He tries. He reserves the right to test the faith of His people, which is what He is doing for Abraham in Genesis 22. He also does lead into times of testing and trial. Is this not the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ when He is led by the Spirit to be tempted 40 days by the devil in the wilderness? So the challenge then when we read this, especially in the life of our Lord who's taken by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, driven in one of the Gospels, it tells us, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. We wonder, well, well is that in, does that mean that that's in con- contradiction to this prayer? Lead us not into temptation. If I want to be Christ-like and He was led to be tempted, maybe it's more Christ-like to be led into temptation. Of course, that's not the case. As we read earlier, James 1.13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So when it comes to tempting men into sin, God doesn't do it. He doesn't tempt anyone. But he does test. He does. So as we're praying then, lead us not into temptation. We're praying that He will govern in such a way to deliver us from those things that will pull us into sin. But it isn't a prayer that removes from God the right to lead us into places of trial. Read of our Lord Jesus Christ that He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So He experienced temptation. And I was thinking about that. Lead us not into temptation, but, but He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet obviously without sin. Does that mean that this prayer was not answered for Him? Or maybe He didn't pray it at all? What does that mean? And I'm not sure I have all the answers, beloved. I don't, but... There is certainly a distinction between the level of temptation endured by Christ and ourselves. And so it would seem to me that this petition does not mean the total avoidance of temptation. So it's not when we're saying lead us not into temptation is not in such a way suggesting that if God answers this, He will remove all temptation whatsoever. Because clearly that's not the case. It wasn't the case for Christ. It's not the case for us. We experience temptation. It is real. But on a basic level, this request acknowledges the sovereignty of God over our affairs and that He may prevent any circumstance that might lead to temptation that will overcome us. So Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. He knows exactly, even if they are in some way being confronted with temptation, he knows how to deliver them. If there's a t- temptation that he understands is, is we, are, we appear to be going into, he knows how to navigate things, sovereignly govern things, so that 
We won't face something that inevitably will overcome us. So you remember last week when we were dealing with Job. And Satan's roaming around the earth looking who, what he might do to destroy men. And he's asked the question, hast thou considered my servant Job? And so on. And he had. He had looked at him. He had seen, you've put a hedge about him and so on and so forth. And he can only deal with Job as far as God sovereignly permitted May there have been something that could have happened to Job that would have, that would have derailed him? I don't know. It's hard to think much more of what he could have gone through. But we see clearly that God is sovereign. And Job is only confronted with what God permits. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, clearly it's not an avoidance of all temptation, just as it wasn't even for Christ. But He will sovereignly govern so that no temptation will utterly overcome His people. He is able to do that. So what are we to do then? James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there's two sides of it. Submitting to God. Why? He is sovereign. He is in control. He is all powerful. There's also the resisting of the devil. That is not entering into allegiance with him or playing games with him. So there's, he is sovereign. And without that, there's no deliverance. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil is a recognition that God alone can bring this to pass. Because I can't see the future. I don't know what Satan would plan. I don't know what's coming my way or what people might intend in terms of doing me harm. I don't know any of that. But I can trust that when I pray this, that God will sovereignly govern and hedge me and truly guide me so that I will not be totally overcome. This does not deny human responsibility. If I am praying in this way, I must work to this end. And so when you pray this way, let me, let me spell it out bluntly, especially for, well, for us all, maybe especially the young people. When you pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You can't pray this way. And then go to a place, go to a party, for example, where you know the likelihood of great temptation is there. That would be foolish. It's like, you know, I know, I know what's likely to be there. So you don't fall down on your knees and pray this prayer and then go. <laughs> you flee. You run. You avoid. So let me summarize. Let me summarize this petition for us in this way. First, this is a prayer that God would deliver us 
from Satan's peculiar attacks to destroy us. He has peculiar attacks to destroy you. They are frequent. They are consistent. They are tailored. He knows. He knows how to destroy you. What will destroy you might not necessarily destroy me. He knows that. He knows you perhaps better than you know yourself. He is watching. He has been about this business long enough. He understands how you're wired. He recognizes that some are more prone to anger. Some are more prone to lethargy. Some are more prone to lust. And some are prone to whatever. All sorts of things. He knows. And he sees the circumstances. He sees the conditions. He times his attacks. He does. He times his attacks. I believe it. Oh, he didn't come to Eve. He didn't come to Eve when Eve couldn't see the fruit. He made sure to come when he could say, kind of invite her, and she could just glance across and see what God had forbidden. That's not, that's not just happening that way. He is, he is tailoring in that. He knows exactly what he's doing so that she's, she's in proximity to it. He doesn't wait until she's miles away and she's, you know, there's kind of less of a temptation. He waits until she's right there and she can look across and it's just maybe a few yards away. And that's when he times his attack. That's what it is with you, with all of us. He knows exactly what he's doing. He, he, he waits till you're in proximity. He, he doesn't come to Joseph in such a way where he's trying to tempt him to lust in, in ways that will have no power over him. He brings, he brings someone. It's, it's not just a random woman. It's, it's his boss's wife. And he's, he's in a rock and a hard place. Because if he doesn't give her what she wants, then she can turn on him, just as she did. Tell her own narrative. So he doesn't bring just some, some random lass into his life. It's, it's, it's his boss's wife. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he is doing. Be sober, be vigilant. Do you see? Do you understand? So this is a prayer that God would deliver us from Satan's peculiar attacks to destroy us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Also, this is a prayer that God would deliver us from sin's deceptive effort to entangle us. This is a prayer that God would deliver us from sin's deceptive effort to entangle us. It is deceptive. Sin doesn't come and sell itself as, hey, I'll destroy your life. <laughs> doesn't do that. It sells itself. It puts on its best garb. It takes an angle that is alluring. It knows exactly what it's doing. And of course, we have ways of, ways of turning it, even in our own minds. But this prayer is that God would deliver us from sin's deceptive effort to entangle and ultimately destroy us. This is also a prayer that God would so lead us away from places and circumstances where sin is inevitable to us. Follow that. This is a prayer that God would so lead us 
away from places and circumstances where sin is inevitable to us. You don't know. You don't know. Maybe you don't get that job and you're all upset about it. But that has been an answer to this prayer. Because if you're in that place of employment, there are people there, circumstances there, something that you don't know anything about. And He, your God, knows. And in answer to this prayer, He leads you away from places and circumstances where sin is inevitable to you. And fourthly, this is a prayer that God would not leave us alone in any place or circumstances because sin is inevitable to us. You follow? This is a prayer that God would not leave us alone in any place or circumstances because sin is inevitable to us. Don't leave me alone, Lord. Don't leave me alone. Lead us means He's there with us, doesn't it? Lead us means His presence is known by us. Lead us means that He is present and He is delivering us from evil means He is there as our guard, as our guide, as our butler and shield and high tower. I can't last a minute without His help, can you? I don't imagine myself to have the strength to survive one minute without His grace. So, so we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Can you pray this prayer? I don't mean can you, as in can you say the words. I'm repeating what I meant last week. Is it in your heart to pray this prayer? This is, this, is, this, is, this is going the other direction of the world, right? Let's let out. This is going in the other direction. The world is heading into temptation, heading into evil, and it loves it. It's all for it. It'll take it all, gather it up, harvest it. And God, let me reword it, your Savior, Jesus Christ, encourages you to pray this way, go in the opposite direction. Go in the opposite direction. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, so you're saying, our Father, who art in heaven, you're, you're praying to your Father that you must be moving away from the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. There, there can be no bringing together of this. It's lead us not into temptation. It's get us away, away from temptation. Deliver us from evil. Don't leave us to face it ourselves and succumb to its power. Are you prepared to be a peculiar people, different from the world? Are you? Are you enticed by the world? Are you? If you're enticed by it, if there's an attraction to it, you can't pray this way. It's a contradiction. Are you Christ's? Are you? Are you Christ's? Do you hear the voice of your master above the voice of the world? Do you? Do you hear his will? Oh, do you, Christian? Do you hear his will? He's saying, pray this way. Pray this way. 
Don't, don't, don't follow the world. Don't enter temptation. Don't toy with evil. No, pray this way. Do you understand? Do you feel it? Do you feel his voice, his will? Do you feel the draw in your own heart? Have you, have you come here tonight backslidden? You've been playing games. You're not where you ought to be. You know that. And it's in total defiance of how Jesus has taught you to pray. I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you in Christ's name. I want you to hear him. If you came to him and said, Lord, teach me to pray, he would say, here's how to pray. And I want you to understand the implications. I trust everything that has been said is aligned with, with the heart of this prayer, these petitions. This is the will of your God. This is the desire of your Savior. This is how to pray. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. The Lord's Prayer is certainly wonderful. There's no denying that. We could spend weeks, many more weeks in it. But ultimately, it, it, it just needs to be prayed. We need to go over it and endeavor to see it worked out in our lives. We can't pray, hallowed be thy name, if we don't endeavor ourselves to set God apart as holy. People should look at your life and say, there's someone who believes truly in who God is and, and hallows, that is, reveres their God. You can't pray, thy kingdom come, if life is all about your ambitions your desires. You pray it and you endeavor to live it out. You can't pray, Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth, if you have no interest in obedience. These things are, they're searching, they're searching. Searching for us all. If you need to talk, if you have any concerns spiritually, don't hesitate to reach out and we'll be glad to open the word with you and, and pray with you. Lord, give us grace to pray this prayer and grant that it may be answered in all of our lives. We plead, O oh God, that thou wilt lead us gently and help us to understand the liberty that we have in Christ. Oh, Sin shall not have dominion over you. May we know the overcoming power of grace. And when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Oh God, help us. Help us to love thee and help us to serve thee. Bless our fellowship. We pray for the food that's provided downstairs. Nourish it to us and help us to eat and drink to thy glory and make thy presence known in our conversation together. 
May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.